Nathaniel Hawthorne brings us the themes of simplicity, practical wisdom, and the love of humanity in this story. Presidential hopeful Daniel Webster is said to play a part in what you're about to hear. You decide. Here's the second half of The Great Stone Face. More years sped swiftly and tranquilly away. Ernest still dwelt in his native valley and was now a man of middle age. By imperceptible degrees, he had become known among the people. Now, as heretofore, he labored for his bread and was the same simple-hearted man that he had always been. But he had thought and felt so much and he had given so many of the best hours of his life to unworldly hopes for some great good to mankind, that it seemed as though he'd been talking with the angels and had imbibed a portion of their wisdom unawares. It was visible in the calm and well-considered beneficence of his daily life, the quiet stream of which had made a wide green margin all along its course. Not a day passed by that the world was not the better because of this man, humble as he was, because this man had lived. He never stepped aside from his own path, yet would always reach a blessing to his neighbor. Almost involuntarily, too, he had become a preacher. The pure and high simplicity of his thought, which, as one of its manifestations, took shape in the good deeds that dropped silently from his hand, flowed also forth in speech. He uttered truths that wrought upon and molded the lives of those who heard him. His auditors, it may be, never suspected that Ernest, their own neighbor and familiar friend, was more than an ordinary man. Least of all did Ernest himself suspect it. But inevitably, as the murmur of a rivulet, came thoughts out of his mouth that no other human lips had spoken. When the people's minds had had a little time to cool, they were ready enough to acknowledge their mistake in imagining a similarity between general blood and thunder's truculent physiognomy and the benign visage on the mountainside. But now again, there were reports and many paragraphs in the newspapers affirming that the likeness of the great stone face had appeared upon the broad shoulders of a certain eminent statesman. He, like Mr. Gathergold and Old Blood and Thunder, was a native of the valley, but had left it in his early days and taken up the trades of law and politics. Instead of the rich man's wealth and the warrior's sword, he had but a tongue and it was mightier than both together. So wonderfully eloquent was he that whatever he might choose to say, his auditors had no choice but to believe him. Wrong looked right, and right like wrong.
for when it pleased him, he could make a kind of illuminated fog from his mere breath and obscure the natural daylight with it. His tongue, indeed, was a magic instrument. Sometimes it rumbled like thunder. Sometimes it warbled like the sweetest music. It was the blast of war, the song of peace, and it seemed to have a heart in it when there was no such matter. In good truth, he was a wondrous man, and when his tongue had acquired him all other imaginable success, when it had been heard in halls of state and in the courts of princes and potentates, after it made him known all over the world, even as a voice crying from shore to shore, it finally persuaded his countrymen to select him for the presidency. Before this time, indeed, as soon as he began to grow celebrated, his admirers had found out the resemblance between him and the great stone face. And so much were they struck by it that throughout the country, this distinguished gentleman was known by the name of Old Stony Fizz. The phrase was considered as giving a highly favorable aspect to his political prospects. For, as is likewise the case with the popedom, nobody ever becomes president without taking a name other than his own. While his friends were doing their best to make him president, old Stony Fizz, as he was called, set out on a visit to the valley where he was born. Of course, he had no other object than to shake hands with his fellow citizens and neither thought nor cared about any effect which his progress through the country might have upon the election. Magnificent preparations were made to receive the illustrious statesman. A cavalcade of horsemen set forth to meet him at the boundary line of the state, and all the people left their business and gathered along the wayside to see him pass. Among these was Ernest. Though more than once disappointed, as we have seen, he had such a hopeful and confiding nature that he was always ready to believe in whatever seemed beautiful and good. He kept his heart continually open and thus was sure to catch the blessing from on high when it should come. So now again, as buoyantly as ever, he went forth to behold the likeness of the great stone face. The cavalcade came prancing along the road with a great clattering of hoofs and a mighty cloud of dust, which rose up so dense and high that the visage of the mountainside was completely hidden from Ernest's eyes. All the great men of the neighborhood were there on horseback, militia officers in uniform, the member of Congress, the sheriff of the county, the editors of newspapers, and many a farmer, too, had mounted his patient steed with his Sunday coat upon his back. It really was a very brilliant spectacle, 
especially as there were numerous banners flaunting over the cavalcade, on some of which were gorgeous portraits of the illustrious statesman and the great stone face smiling familiarly at one another like two brothers. If the pictures were to be trusted, the mutual resemblance, it must be confessed, was marvelous. We must not forget to mention that there was a band of music which made the echoes of the mountains ring and reverberate with the loud triumph of its strains, so that airy and soul-thrilling melodies broke out among all the heights and hollows as if every nook of his native valley had found a voice to welcome the distinguished guest. But the grandest effect was when the far-off mountain precipice flung back the music. For then, the great stone face itself seemed to be swelling the triumphant chorus in acknowledgment that, at length, the man of prophecy was come. All this while the people were throwing up their hats and shouting with enthusiasm so contagious that the heart of Ernest kindled up, and he likewise threw up his hat and shouted as loudly as the loudest, Huzzah for the great man! Huzzah for old stony fizz! But as yet, he had not seen him. Here he is now, cried those who stood near Ernest. There, there, look at old stony fizz. Oh, and then look at the old man of the mountain and see if they are not as like as two twin brothers. In the midst of all this gallant array came an open barouche drawn by four white horses. And in the barouche was his massive head uncovered. There he sat, the illustrious statesman, old Stony Fizz himself. Oh, confess it, said one of Ernest's neighbors to him. The great stone face has met its match at last. Now, it must be owned that at his first glimpse of the countenance, which was bowing and smiling from the barouche, Ernest did fancy that there was a resemblance between it and the old familiar face upon the mountainside. The brow, with its massive depth and loftiness, and all the other features indeed were boldly and strongly hewn as if in emulation of a more than heroic, of a titanic model. But the sublimity and stateliness, the grand expression of a divine sympathy that illuminated the mountain visage and etherealized its ponderous granite substance into spirit might here be sought in vain. Something had been originally left out or had departed, and therefore the marvelously gifted statesman had always a weary gloom in the deep caverns of his eyes as of a child 
had outgrown its playthings. Hmm. Or a man of mighty faculties and little aims, whose life with all its high performances was vague and empty, because no high purpose had endowed it with reality. Still, Ernest's neighbor was thrusting his elbow into his side and pressing him for an answer. Confess, confess, is not he the very picture of your old man of the mountain? No, said Ernest bluntly. I see little or no likeness. Then so much the worse for the great stone face, answered his neighbor. And again, he set up a shout for old stony fizz. But Ernest turned away, melancholy and almost despondent, for this was the saddest of his disappointments, to behold a man who might have fulfilled the prophecy and had not willed to do so. Meantime, the cavalcade, the banners, the music, the barouches swept past him, with the vociferous crowd in the rear leaving the dust to settle down and the great stone face to be revealed again with the grandeur that it had worn for untold centuries. Lo, here I am, Ernest, the benign lips seemed to say. I have waited longer than thou and am not yet weary. Fear not, the man will come. The years hurried onward, treading in their haste on one another's heels. And now they began to bring white hairs and scatter them over the head of Ernest. They made reverend wrinkles across his forehead and furrows in his cheeks. He was an aged man. But not in vain had he grown old. More than the white hairs on his head were the sage thoughts in his mind. His wrinkles and furrows were inscriptions that time had graved and in which he had written legends of wisdom that had been tested by the tenor of a life. And Ernest had ceased to be obscure. Unsought for, undesired, had come the fame which so many seek and made him known in the great world beyond the limits of the valley in which he had dwelt so quietly. College professors and even the active men of cities came from far to see and converse with Ernest. For the report had gone abroad that this simple husband, man, had ideas unlike those of other men, not gained from books, but of a higher tone, a tranquil and familiar majesty, as if he had been talking with the angels as his daily friends. Whether it were sage, statesman, or philanthropist, Ernest received these visitors with the gentle sincerity that had characterized him from boyhood and spoke freely with them 
of whatever came uppermost or lay deepest in his heart or their own. While they talked together, his face would kindle unawares and shine upon them as with a mild evening light. Pensive with the fullness of such discourse, his guests took leave and went their way, and passing up the valley paused to look at the great stone face, imagining that they had seen its likeness in a human countenance, but could not remember where. While Ernest had been growing up and growing old, a bountiful, bountiful providence had granted a new poet to this earth. He, likewise, was a native of the valley, but had spent the greater part of his life at a distance from that romantic region, pouring out his sweet music amid the bustle and din of cities. Often, however, did the mountains, which had been familiar to him in his childhood, lift their snowy peaks into the clear atmosphere of his poetry. Neither was the great stone face forgotten, for the poet had celebrated it in an ode which was grand enough to have been uttered by its own majestic lips. The man of genius, we may say, had come down from heaven with wonderful endowments. If he sang of a mountain, the eyes of all mankind beheld a mighty grandeur reposing on its breast or soaring to its summit than had before been seen there. If his theme was a lovely lake, a celestial smile had now been thrown over it to gleam forever on its surface. If it were the vast old sea, even the deep immensity of its dread bosom seemed to swell the higher as if moved by the emotions of the song. Thus the world assumed another and a better aspect from the hour that the poet blessed it with his happy eyes. The creator had bestowed him as the last best touch to his own handiwork. Creation was not finished till the poet came to interpret and so complete it. The effect was no less high and beautiful when his human brethren were the subject of his verse. The man or woman, sordid with the common dust of life who crossed his daily path, and the little child who played in it were glorified. If he beheld them in his mood of poetic faith, he showed the golden links of the great chain that intertwined them with an angelic kindred. He brought out the hidden traits of a celestial birth that made them worthy of such kin. Some indeed there were who thought to show the soundness of their judgment by affirming that all the beauty and all the dignity of the natural world existed only in the poet's fancy. Let such men speak for themselves, who undoubtedly appear to have been spawned forth by nature with a contemptuous bitterness, having plastered them up out of her refuse stuff after all the swine were made. As respects all things else, the poet's ideal was the truest truth.
the songs of this poet found their way to Ernest. He read them after his customary toil, seated on the bench before his cottage door, where for such a length of time he had filled his repose with thought by gazing at the great stone face. And now, as he read stanzas that caused the soul to thrill within him, he lifted his eyes to the vast countenance beaming on him so benignantly. O oh, majestic friend, he murmured, addressing the great stone face, is not this man worthy to resemble thee? The face seemed to smile, but answered not a word. Now, it happened that the poet though he dwelt so far away, had not only heard of Ernest, but had meditated much upon his character until he deemed nothing so desirable as to meet this man whose untaught wisdom walked hand in hand with the noble simplicity of his life. One summer morning, therefore, he took passage on the railroad and in the decline of the afternoon alighted from the cars at no great distance from Ernest's cottage. The great hotel, which had formerly been the palace of Mr. Gathergold, was close at hand, but the poet, with his carpet bag on his arm, inquired at once where Ernest dwelt, and was resolved to be accepted as his guest. Approaching the door, he there found the good old man holding a volume in his hand, which alternately he read and then, with a finger between the leaves, looked lovingly at the great stone face. Good evening, said the poet. Can you give a traveler a night's lodging? Willingly, answered Ernest. And then he added, smiling, Methinks I never saw the great stone face look so hospitably at a stranger. The poet sat down on the bench beside him, and he and Ernest talked together. Often had the poet held intercourse with the wittiest and the wisest, but never before with a man like Ernest, whose thoughts and feelings gushed up with such a natural freedom, and who made great truths so familiar by his simple utterance of them. Angels as had been so often said, seemed to have wrought him at his labor in the fields. Angels seemed to have sat with him by the fireside, and dwelling with angels as friend with friends, he had imbibed the sublimity of their ideas and imbued it with the sweet and lowly charm of household words. So thought the poet. And Ernest, on the other hand, was moved and agitated by the living images which the poet flung out of his mind and which peopled all the air about the cottage door with shapes of beauty, both gay and pensive. The sympathies of these two men instructed them with a profounder sense than either could have attained alone. Their minds accorded into one strain and made delightful music, which neither of them could have claimed as all his own, nor distinguished his own share from the others. They led one another, as it were, into a high pavilion of their thoughts, so remote and hitherto so dim, 
that they had never entered it before, and so beautiful that they desired to be there always. As Ernest listened to the poet, he imagined that the great stone face was bending forward to listen too. He gazed earnestly into the poet's glowing eyes. Who are you, my strangely gifted guest, he said. The poet laid his finger on the volume that Ernest had been reading. You have read these poems, said he. You know me then, for I wrote them. Again, and still more earnestly than before, Ernest examined the poet's features, then turned towards the great stone face, then back with an uncertain aspect to his guest. But his countenance fell. He shook his head and sighed. Wherefore are you sad? inquired the poet. Because, replied Ernest, all through life I have awaited the fulfillment of a prophecy. And when I read these poems, I hoped that it might be fulfilled in you. You hoped, answered the poet, faintly smiling, to find me the likeness of the great stone face, and you were disappointed. As formerly with Mr. Gathergold and old blood and thunder and old stony fizz. Yes, Ernest, it is my doom. You must add my name to the illustrious three and record another failure of your hopes. For in shame and sadness do I speak it, Ernest. I am not worthy to be typified by yonder benign and majestic image. And why? asked Ernest. He pointed to the volume. Are not these thoughts divine? They have a strain of divinity, replied the poet. You can hear in them the far-off echo of a heavenly song. But my life, dear Ernest, has not corresponded with my thought. I have had grand dreams, but they have been only dreams because I have lived, and that too by my own choice, among poor and mean realities, sometimes even, shall I dare to say it? I lack faith in the grandeur, the beauty, and the goodness which my own works are said to have made more evident in nature and in human life. Why then, pure seeker of the good and true, Shouldst thou hope to find me in yonder image of the divine? The poet spoke sadly, and his eyes were dim with tears. So, likewise, were those of Ernest. At the hour of sunset, as had long been his frequent custom, Ernest was to discourse to an assemblage of the neighboring inhabitants in the open air. He and the poet, arm in arm, still talking together as they went along, proceeded to the spot. It was a small nook among the hills, with a gray precipice behind the stern front, of which was relieved by the pleasant foliage of many creeping plants that made a tapestry for the naked rock by hanging their festoons from its rugged angles. 
at a small elevation above the ground, set in a rich framework of verdure, there appeared a niche, spacious enough to admit a human figure, with freedom for such gestures as spontaneously accompany earnest thought and genuine emotion. Into this natural pulpit, Ernest ascended, and threw a look of familiar kindness around upon his audience. They stood or sat or reclined upon the grass, as seemed good to each, with the departing sunshine falling obliquely over them and mingling its subdued cheerfulness with the solemnity of a grove of ancient trees beneath and amid the boughs of which the golden rays were constrained to pass. In another direction was seen the great stone face with the same cheer combined with the same solemnity in its benignant aspect. Ernest began to speak, giving to the people of what was in his heart and mind. His words had power because they accorded with his thoughts. And his thoughts had reality and depth because they harmonized with the life which he had always lived. It was not mere breath that this preacher uttered. They were the words of life because a life of good deeds and holy love was melted into them. Pearls, pure and rich, had been dissolved into this precious drop. The poet, as he listened, felt that the being and character of Ernest were a nobler strain of poetry than he had ever written. His eyes glistening with tears, he gazed reverentially at the venerable man, and he said within himself that never was there an aspect so worthy of a prophet and a sage as that mild, sweet, thoughtful countenance with the glory of white hair diffused above it. At a distance, but distinctly to be seen, high up in the golden light of the setting sun, appeared the great stone face with hoary mists around it, like the white hairs around the brow of Ernest. Its look of grand munificence seemed to embrace the world. At that moment, in sympathy with the thought which he was about to utter, the face of Ernest assumed a grandeur of expression so imbued with benevolence that the poet, by an irresistible impulse, threw his arms aloft and shouted, Behold! Behold! Ernest is himself the likeness of the great stone face. And all the people looked and saw what the deep-sided poet said was true. The prophecy was fulfilled. But Ernest, having finished what he had to say, took the poet's arm and walked slowly homeward still hoping that some wiser and better man than himself 
would by and by appear, bearing a resemblance to the great stone face.